Welcome back to another episode of Superhumanize, my dear superhumans. Again, and as always, I'm just so happy to be sharing this time with you. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution. How would it feel if you could keep your heart fully open and if you immerse yourself into love without compromise, finding a union, a relationship beyond your wildest dreams and desires, who would you be if you lived life based on love and not fear, in alignment with your higher purpose? What if you could devote yourself to becoming who you're designed to truly be and savor the full spectrum of life? And what if someone were to show you how you can become this fullest version of yourself. I'm excited to have this someone, or rather these someones, here with me today. Benjamin and Azria Becker co-wrote a book about their journey into becoming soulmates and creating a business together. Their book, Becoming Everything You Didn't Know You Wanted, is the raw, vulnerable, and powerful story of creating a love and life in integrity with your deepest self and standing up to anything that may be holding you down. Benjamin and Azria are also the founders of the online platform Becoming, dedicated to providing the future stewards of society with the emotional intelligence tools to elevate humanity and co-create a more beautiful world. summer and I have passionately dedicated the last 12 years of my life to creating the ultimate human experience mentally, physically and spiritually based on the most powerful ancient teachings and cutting edge modern discoveries and technologies. The Superhumanized podcast is a show committed to sharing what I have learned from the world's leading experts in order to help you achieve your full potential and create your best life ever. Azria, Benjamin, it is such a pleasure. Welcome to the Superhumanized podcast, and thank you for making time for us today. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Looking forward to this. Thank you. Me too. I've been really excited to talk to you both. I love what you're about, you're about your mission, and what you put forth into this world as offerings in such an honest and vulnerable and also courageous way, embracing your own agency. And there's a lot of different topics I'd love to touch upon. Something I'd like to start the conversation with is a quote that you have in your beautiful book, Becoming Everything You Didn't Know You Wanted. And I think it's towards the latter part of the book, there is a quote about dying before you die. And I would love to know why you chose this quote. There's other fantastic quotes as well. But why did you choose this particular quote? I think in some ways that quote summarizes the whole sort of shamanic personal transformation journey that we are both personally devoted to in our own journey, as well as really what we've devoted our life to creating opportunities and spaces for others to experience. So this idea that you can face off with 
maybe the most foundational survival fear that we all have, right? The fear of death. Mm-hmm. And to really face that and understand that the part of us that is afraid of dying is actually just one aspect of a bigger picture. And that there are, that in our multidimensional nature, we have many various layers of consciousness and awareness that actually continue to exist long after what we call death occurs. And so meeting that reality of death and facing that part of ourselves that's so afraid to relinquish the control that it feels it has on life, I think is the ultimate ticket to liberating ourselves from so many of the ways in which that we keep ourselves locked in to certain ways of being just for protection reasons and don't allow ourselves to fully come alive, fully live the truest expression of, as we like to call it, who we are designed to be, which requires risk, right? And so when we're even subconsciously deeply afraid of death because we've never confronted it, we will be in some ways preserving against that. And so it will affect how we show up and the types of risk we're willing to take in our life. And we just feel like there's too many people who are playing it safe and not allowing themselves to fully go for it. I can relate to that very much. I just also recently uncovered by using a medicine in that case, ketamine, that there's still quite a substantial part inside myself that is afraid of death, not so much so dying, but this idea that the potential of losing the connections to those I love. Of course. And which, of course, is tethered in this ego and this station in the flesh and not while maybe some way emotionally, intellectually, I grasp that this is not all we are. And it's also what I firmly believe. This is just a small aspect of who we are, but there is this remaining fear, right? And I think when we are operating on fear, then the choices that we make become so small. Like you Mm -hmm. said, we're not fully alive. And another aspect also of this, what your quote made me think of is there, when we're not willing to or afraid to go through the fire and basically cast off parts of ourselves that don't serve us anymore. Let those die. And then who we are to be will never fully emerge. Something that really struck a chord in your book is the vulnerability and also the power of surrender And your book is like really raw and vulnerable and open. And because of that, it's also exquisitely beautiful. And there's actually a, for those in the audience who are not familiar with your book yet, there's a really great quote that Ali Shaper, she's a co-founder of Multiverse and Supermush, gave the book. And it basically encompasses it. Holy fuck, it's 50 shades of gray the untethered soul, the notebook, and the four agreements. It's like they had a baby and it's a masterpiece. And I thought that was the first page is basically, you guys are full on, the heat is on, and you offer us, the reader, to connect with how both of you actually deeply connected. And Mm. there's such a beautiful scene or unfolding of scenes. Could you share some of that story with us of how you basically started engaging in what is a divine union. Yeah, we certainly had an explosive beginning to our relationship. And I think that 
we chose to share it. We have this quote in the book that we invite you to share the fullness of who you are with the world by sharing the fullness of who we are with you. And so really the book in one big way is an invitation for the reader to just be vulnerable and transparent. And we talk about the highs and the lows of our relationship and the and the passion that is there in a way to inspire. And sometimes it's very triggering to people, which we also see as medicine. But the book starts off very hot and steamy with an LSD scene on the beach where I tie Azria up and have my way with her. But the and really from talk about the impact of that on our relationship and the impact of psychedelics on our journey in a really transparent way. And I think that we used medicines to dissolve walls that were up as they wanted to come up and to continue to lean into trust and surrender. And I think that we share our journey with that in a very transparent way. Yeah. And I think that it is, again, coming back to that theme of facing the edge, whatever the edge is, whether the edge is death, it's like an extreme version, or the edge is like of your comfort zone, which every time you cross the edge of your comfort zone, you are also going through a little mini death in some way. Some part of you that wants to stay safe and stay the same has to die to give space for that new version. And psychedelics, plant medicine, these substances can really support us in experiencing what it's like to surrender deeply into the unknown, into parts of our own psyche or even our own physical body that we maybe otherwise have a lot of resistance or suppression around. And so we chose to start the book off with that experience because that was such a, that experience was such a manifestation of this theme of surrendering to the unknown, taking the risk, letting yourself come fully alive in that moment, which is really what my experience was as the recipient of this blindfolded BDSM kind of journey that we decided to, we were like, there's not enough personal development and spiritual books out there that start off with LSD and BDSM. So I think this is our, this is ours to do, <laughs> change the narrative a little bit. These things can also be sexy. And it's, it was delivered in such a beautiful way. I really felt while I was reading it, that I was there from a writer's from a reader and a writer's perspective, just the way you tell your story, it's, it truly moves something in the reader. And that's basically what you also want to do when you share stories. And I've always felt that storytelling, the true rocket fuel of humanity, it helps us ascend. It helps us to look outside of if we sit in a box, the box of our own lives, and hopefully aspire to something that makes us feel more fulfilled and greater than what we are at the present moment to actually become, to evolve. And with regards to becoming, the word in a sense is self-explanatory. However, you two have your own take on this. Can you tell us what you mean, the meaning for you of becoming? Yeah, we define becoming as devotion to the process of becoming who you were designed to be by radically embracing your greatest challenges as curriculum and savoring the full spectrum of life and death. I think we touched on the death part a little earlier, but it's really about that journey of becoming who you were designed to be and exploring what it is to be fully alive. I think so many of us, I've certainly spent a lot of my life sleepwalking through sections of my life. And so it's really this journey of, I think I spent a lot of my life as an example, uh, being guided by the wrong priorities. And with 
I think, distorted intentions. And so it's about really being on that journey of, of questioning who you were designed to be, of discovering who you were designed to be, of asking who you are, why you were put on this earth, and then really savoring all of life. A lot of times in life, I think we live in a world that focuses on trying to be happy and these highs all the time and in pursuit of something. And the truth is, the beautiful part is when you can savor the mundane in the same way that you can savor the, the special moments, the highs. And so I think it's learning to appreciate all of life, appreciate where you are and what is, and that is the secret to it all. And so that's our slant on it. Yeah. We should also mention that becoming the way we spell it is with a Q and not a C. And so the Q really does represent that, what Benjamin mentioned, like the questions, the essential questions in life, continually asking those. And it has a few other meanings as well, which you can find in the book. But uh, but yeah, I think if you're not willing to question who you are, why you're here, where you're going, your deeper intentions, how, the way reality works, then then in some ways you're not wrong that every, everyone has their their path in this life. But I think today, especially, people are starting to ask those questions because the circumstances on our planet are just really evoking deeper sense of finding meaning in something, right? There's a, Charles Eisenstein talks about how we're in a crisis of meaning. And like you said, stories are powerful tools and stories are more than stories. They're really architectural tools with which we shape and mold reality. The stories we tell ourselves about what things are is also our experience of those things. And so what the stories are that we choose to tell about ourselves and our reality. Like we can't really consciously be the narrators of that story or of the collective story if we're not asking those deeper questions. So that's the invitation really with becoming is to invite people into that exploration. Mm -hmm. And you also created a beautiful platform where you offer media or you offer stories and you also offer tools for people to actually embark on that journey. And what I really love about both of your mission is that you intend to enable, empower others to become leaders. I feel that we're so mired in a culture where we look for leadership and authority on the outside instead of standing within and with our own agency. And what you just mentioned, if you look at the state that the world is in, we need a collective shift to happen. And that begins with each and every one of us. And it also begins with noticing, acknowledging, and embracing the leader in each and every one of us and helping others if they need a hand or maybe need a guiding light to see that in themselves and to bring that forth. Yeah, leadership is very important today. And Conscious leadership is important. Leadership that is grounded in a deep humility and in a deep understanding of self and the full spectrum of self, right? I think the most powerful leaders today are the ones who are willing to acknowledge that they don't have it all figured out (laughs) and that they also have a shadow side and that they also have their own childhood trauma that they're trying to work through, right? To me, that is the new paradigm of leadership. And that's a big part of what we're inviting into the conversation with our offerings because Benjamin comes from a background of entrepreneurism and leadership and has been surrounded by CEOs and people who are in leadership positions for many decades. And the theme is 
just always the the same, maybe not exactly the same, but the themes are similar, right? That there's this sense of, okay, I climbed the ladder. I got all the things I thought I wanted. And now I have all this power and influence, but I don't really feel fulfilled or I don't really feel like I'm making a positive impact in the world. And that becomes the pain point then that, that wants to be looked at. I think that also is tied in with If you look at the high level of mental health problems, anxiety, and depression that certainly have been compounded, become we became more aware of them, they became more acute in the last two and a half years. I think part of it is rooted also in us not being aligned with our purpose. And in so many ways, we try to numb ourselves in order to keep functioning in a my opinion, very dysfunctional paradigm, which to a large extent is the society as we know it today. Uh, And when I would like to know from both of you is from you, Benjamin, and also from you, Azria, the, when did each of you come into alignment with your purpose? And from that, what can you share with others who may desire to also do that, but they feel a little lost. Yeah, I could give you a really long answer to that question, but I think I felt lost for most of my life. And I think it was because I didn't truly understand what my purpose was. And I didn't, I think the, the more interesting part of that is, is that I didn't understand what was blocking me from knowing my purpose. Right. So it's a lot of times as we think it's like, we're on this journey to figure it out, but if it was that simple, you would get to the answer very quickly. I think often there's things blocking us from finding our purpose. And so for me, it was through the work with plant medicines that allowed me to excavate the true understanding of what was blocking me. And so there was really a childhood trauma that I couldn't really read as a child. And so I didn't feel, I didn't realize, and I didn't relate to it as a trauma, but through this work with the medicine, I was able to discover that at the core I didn't feel safe in the world and it was from this childhood place and I was suppressing feelings and I was spent most of my life seeking external validation through the conquest of women or the incessant need for more and more material wealth. And I was chasing that kind of what a lot of our society does is this traditional material wealth for the sake of validating myself. And so because I was in this place that I didn't feel safe and I needed this validation, I wasn't able to truly step into service or find my purpose. I think in order for somebody to be living their purpose, there needs to be a portion of that is of service to something greater than themselves. And I wasn't able to do that because I was in this energy of trying to like fill an empty void. Right. And so until I was able to heal that uh, childhood wound and feel those feelings that I've been suppressing my life, was I able to actually then step into true service and share my blessings with the world. And so for me, the finding my purpose was the easy part. It just came naturally as soon as I unlocked what was blocking me from being able to see my purpose. And yeah, and then I met Azria and shortly, really, I was in this rock bottom moment where I really questioned my life. And in that rock bottom moment, I found my purpose. And shortly after that, met Azria and then our worlds collided. And within two weeks of meeting, as you read in the book, we were planning our entire lives together and knew we were going to write a book together and build this ecosystem and all the things. But what really, we use this language in our programs that you go from being locked to discovering the key to being unlocked. And so until I found out what was locking me, could I then find the key and live my purpose and be fully unlocked? So that's a long answer to your question. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing, Benjamin. And Azria, how about yourself? 
Yeah, for me, I think that in some ways my purpose was very clear from the beginning, but the way that purpose wanted to express itself changed quite dramatically over the course of my life. So I was always intuitively very connected to life and the beauty of life. And whether it was my connection to the plant and animal kingdom or my connection to really the performance arts, I really felt like very drawn to playing various characters at different theater performances. And I felt early on that I wanted to step into being an actress because at the time I couldn't think of any other way that I could express my purpose, which was really to just feel deeply and feel the human experience fully and play in the full spectrum of the human experience. I couldn't think of how to do that professionally other than acting. To me, that was like the thing that made logical sense. So I went all in into that and that was my purpose for the first 28 years of my life, I would say. Yeah. Until I was about in in my late twenties is when things started to shift. And it wasn't that my purpose changed because in some ways I'm still doing exactly that. I'm still a channel for the human experience. I'm still a storyteller. I'm still someone who's fascinated by the light and the shadow side of our experience of being alive. But the way that it's expressing itself today is not in the Hollywood entertainment industry the way that it was for a long time, but it's through the work we're doing and supporting people in these transformational containers, sharing our story through the media as medicine that we create. And still, you've read the book, like still a very intimate exposing of ourself and of ourselves as like guinea pigs or as case studies, reference points in in the same way that an actor sort of sacrifices their own identity in service to the character so that as the audience, you can go on a journey with that character. It's a similar thing with our work. And I think the book is an example of that. And our documentaries, are, which are coming right behind it, are also an example of that, where part of our purpose is to show others what works for us, not because we're trying to prescribe any one way, but because we feel like what the world needs right now is reference points and examples and if they resonate, then maybe that could be inspiration for someone on their path. And uh, and we are finding that people are really looking for that and really trying to, in a world of a lot of confusion and a lot of conflicting opinions, people are looking for something that feels true and people are looking for something that feels good and expansive. And so even though I think, as Benjamin mentioned, we can be quite triggering for people with how authentic and raw and vulnerable we are. I think for those who are ready and who are hungry for that, it's like a breath of fresh air because it's like, finally, there's something real. And uh, yeah, that's a big part of our purpose. So I think that sometimes our most natural state is like the connection to our truest purpose. But even for you, like Benjamin was entrepreneurial, figuring out ways to like to figuring out ways to structure deals and steward transactions and stuff when he was very young that I didn't have that really in me, how that expresses itself again has evolved. And when it's in service to something bigger than yourself, then it really nourishes you. It's like then, then the feedback loop of like input and output gets closed. And that reciprocity with life starts to really flow versus Mm -hmm. if you're just creating for your personal gain, that always has an expiration date. I find. Mm, Yes. Beautifully said. And also what you said before, Benjamin, about that, that just, 
was not satisfactory, even when you experienced all the things that we're supposed to attain in this life. And something I also really respect is the openness with which you both talk about the use of medicines, plant medicines, psychedelics. Do you personally think that these medicines are necessary for healing and growth? No, I don't think they're necessary. I think that they're tools and they can support people who are feeling the call. I think there has to be an authentic People have to authentically feel called to work with particular substances or medicines. And I also know that there are people who find similar places in their consciousness through other modalities, through breath work, through meditation. And some people have very spontaneous experiences or experiences of a new awareness. But I would say that there is a, certainly a larger percentage of people who could really use the tool right now just because of the sheer volume of mental overactivity that we have in our current culture. And because it is so difficult for people to actually stop and go within, I think these substances can really support us to, in some ways they do the work for us, right? It is a shortcut. And I think a shortcut isn't always a bad thing. Like the analogy that we give often is if you're in a burning forest and you're trying to get out, are you going to take the long way or are you going to take the shortcut? That's a great analogy. I think if if you look at the current circumstances of our planet, if you look at our mental health crisis, our environmental collapse, like the forest is burning. So there is a reason that we have this psychedelic renaissance and that these plant medicines are coming out of the jungle, ayahuasca in particular, and really making themselves known in the Western world. I think there's also a shadow side to that. I think that there's a real, I think there's a real lack of understanding for a lot of people on how to properly work with these medicines. And not that I'm by any means an expert. I'm not a shaman. I'm not, I'm not someone who's initiated into a particular lineage, but I have worked with plant medicine enough and for enough years to have seen what happens when you aren't properly prepared and you aren't properly integrating your experience. And I think that the results, the positive effects of these journeys of these peak states can only really take come to their full fruition if you have other modalities and other tools and other support systems that are in place before and after the experience. It's really a lifestyle change. It's not going to be, I'm going to go to a retreat for a weekend and see God and come home and everything will be different. It's like, there's some pretty dramatic lifestyle changes that have to come along with it. And so those still need to be generated from our own inside from our own internal will. We can't outsource that eventually. Yeah. And I think we like to use the term like expanded states of awareness. So whatever modalities you can use to access expanded states of awareness, which allow you to move from your conscious state of awareness to, to really start working in the unconscious realm, which is we like to say is the domain of everything you didn't know you wanted, it, whether that's breath work or meditation, if you can access those expanded states of awareness, then those tools can be really powerful. I will say from my personal experience, that false sense of identity, that ego is very strong, has been very strong in my life. And so for me, I couldn't find something as strong as ayahuasca to help me really tap into that unconscious realm and discover some of those things like those childhood wounds and whatnot. I didn't relate to my childhood as being traumatic in any way. And so it was through the work of the medicine that allowed me to tap into that unconscious realm of everything I didn't know I wanted. And so for me, I think just also just highlighting that there are very many tools and I, it's the only tool that I found that let me go that deep. And so I think 
I, and I, we have friends that ha don't use plant medicines. They focus on meditation or breath work and other tools. And I think that's fantastic. And then sometimes you, for some of us who are a little need a little more support, it's beautiful to have something that strong that allows us to play in those unconscious realms. Agreed. And I think we really live in amazing times where not only these medicines in a sense are being brought to us from all kinds of corners of the world. It's like these medicines are reaching out to us because we need it. We need them. We're also living in a time where all the decades of research that a lot of fantastic flag bearers in that sense in the scientific community have been carrying are rendering amazing results. I mean, something like ketamine that's legal in all 50 US states. We're looking at the potential legalization of MDMA, maybe even as early as late next year. In difference yesterday or this morning, they counted all the votes. And now we have psilocybin legalized in Colorado, which is wonderful to be able to have these in a toolbox and where they're not demonized, but where they're administered by people who absolutely know what they're doing, where you're in a safe container and where you can break down walls and tend to wounds that may have been festering for many decades versus uh, taking a pill multiple times, I don't know, uh, for the rest of your life, but not really getting actually at the root causes. Yeah. So that it's a wonderful thing. And each and every one of us deserves, if that's what we wish, to step into the fullness of who we be and to step into our purpose. And something else that really also causes a state change is not a drug in that sense, although it causes a lot of biochemical changes in the body is love. And you two, I don't know you personally, I just met you right now, but you two exemplify for me something that is really worth striving for if you don't have it, this living example of a sacred union. And when you look at our culture, if you know, what moves us as love, pop culture, the majority or music, the majority of the songs are about love. If you look at gossip and the newspapers, we want to know about who is with who literature, again, a huge focus on love. And I like to say that everything is about love, the presence or the absence of it. And everyone dreams of this. I don't know if you coined that or if your friend Aubrey Marcus, who I also listened to the podcast he did with you. So everybody dreams of this fuck yes type relationship. And the interesting thing, though, is that sometimes the ones that we're closest to are the ones we're most disconnected from. And just because you share a bathroom and a bed does not mean you share true intimacy. And it's there's so many people who are in fuck no or awful or autopilot relationships. So I would like to know from both of you, what does true intimacy mean to you? And then also how, when we don't have it, how can we begin to open up and find the sacred union? Yeah, it's a beautiful question. Thank you. Our company before it was becoming was called the full fuck yes. And so that's a term we've used for some time. And I think you shared a moment ago that a lot of people are in these hell no kind of situations or bad situations. I think what's harder, I think, to identify in the book, we use this quote, the hardest no to identify is the one closest to a yes. Mm. And so when you're in a terrible relationship, I think it's pretty obvious to everyone. But I think the more challenging thing is in life, in any regard, is when 
you're in this situation where you're in a relationship where you're like, yes, this person's great because of all these things, but then these other things and you're in this turmoil, right? And so those no's that are close to a yes are the hardest to identify. And I think that you have to cultivate maturity in yourself to really, to be able to tune in and really know. And the yes that is apparent to everybody else is actually a no to you. And so I think it's really important to really start to examine your life and examine when you have those full body yeses, when you're you're alive and you're excited to be with somebody and cultivate that awareness so that you can make better decisions in your life. And I think, unfortunately, most people are not in terrible situations. They're in good situations that aren't great. And I think to answer your question about intimacy, I think one of the things that creates intimacy in our relationship, and our relationship is really such a beautiful relationship, is this, I think we live in a world where there's this desire for everything to be good all the time or we us to be happy all the time. And what creates intimacy is sharing what's true in every given moment. And so what allows us to be so close is that if anything comes to the surface, if Azria is triggered, she had a conversation with me this morning about what she was feeling and she's she share, we share with each other what's present, good or bad or indifferent, and not from a place of making the other person wrong, but sharing what's true. And, and then when we receive that, we receive what the other person's feeling and not from a place of wanting to make them wrong or right. And so we have, we've never been in a fight in three and a half years together. And we've had very difficult conversations, the conversations that had the potential to end our relationship at times. But we're willing to to explore those things in service to the the greater relationship. Jim Dethmer has a great quote. He says, what are you willing to risk for full aliveness? And so often what what we're forced to risk is feeling uncomfortable. And so when you really examine that question, what are you willing to risk? We're willing to risk everything. We're willing to risk being truly uncomfortable. We're willing to risk the relationship to live fully alive. And so... There's no conversation. There's no secret that's there. There's no thing we're scared of having, of discussing. And what that allows is to have a truthful intimacy at the, at, is really just about truth. And so if you're willing to be truly transparent and truly vulnerable, then you have intimacy. And we're what we're willing to risk for that, the cost of that is being very uncomfortable at times. And so because we're willing to be uncomfortable and have uncomfortable conversations, from a place of wanting to understand, not a place of being right or wrong, it allows for the deepest of intimacy. And so we have one of the most beautiful relationships that I've ever been witness to because of that. There's this reframe on the word intimacies, into me I see. And I think through a, a conscious partnership, you have this constant mirror, right? This constant feedback mechanism of this other human that is like, mirroring back to you parts of yourself that maybe you haven't embraced or parts of you that you that need something that hasn't been met and so this person can trigger all of that material and come to the surface and so how to hold that i think is really it's an art form to be willing to have that level of transparency and openness and share what's coming up and also not fall into the trap of over-processing, because I think that is a real trap in conscious partnership that I see people get lost in, where it's now every little tiny thing is a conversation and it's like constant feedback and constant reflections. And I think that can also become, that can kill the polarity a little bit when you're always processing your emotions all day, every day. So I think it's really important to have 
both to have the safe space with your partnership where you can bring forward anything that really does need to be seen and needs to be witnessed and felt and integrated. But I think it's also equally important to have your own tools and your own practice to process your emotional material, because not everything necessarily needs to be brought into the container of the relationship. Certain Mm -hmm. things are ours to process on our own. Certain needs are ours to fill within ourselves and to not always necessarily reach for that other person. And I think the discernment between when to have your own process and when to bring it into a shared process is something that just comes through time and through maturity. In a previous relationship, I think I didn't have that maturity. And so there was a lot of intellectual processing about certain feelings and experiences, and I could feel it almost kill a certain magic. Yeah. I think it's a real fine line and a real dance there, but I think again, the true intimacy comes yeah, with being seen and being willing to be seen and being willing to speak what's true without projecting blame. That's a really big part of it, which I don't think is even possible if you don't have that active conscious relationship with yourself and you're doing your own work. So Mm -hmm. I would say that's a prerequisite really. Yeah. And I think you said something really crucial here also about the polarity and how important that is. I feel that between the polarities, that's where creation happens. And also to allow yourself to be seen, that's really hard for a lot of Mm -hmm. us, right? We're so conditioned to hide big parts of ourselves, even from ourselves. We don't acknowledge them and we suppress it or we do not, we're not taught how to dance with our shadow selves, but that's where the power lies and to embrace yourself wholly is truly holy work. If you want to talk with a great alchemist, it's the great work. Yeah. And something I, that really resonated with me about your, your philosophy, your concept, your offering of becoming is it's not actually an end game, right? Because we're Mm -hmm. always becoming. And I feel that this focus on an end game is really pervasive in our culture. We're so often not in the now, but we're focused on some goal in the future that keeps us from actually savoring life right now. This also applies to sex. A lot of sex is completely goal-oriented, the orgasm, and so much so that the journey is not truly experienced and you have this straight path and there's a goal and you don't look right or left. (laughs) You never explore the wilderness that may lie beyond the path. And and then we miss so much when we're just so goal-oriented. It's also tied to fear, right? We want to know where we're going. And a lot of the decisions a lot of people make nowadays are fear-based instead of asking how would I maybe choose when I would make a decision from love. So what are, how have you dealt in your life or overcome making decisions based on fear? The only way out is through, right? You got to actually see the fear and see it for what it is, which is the core, always an illusion, Mm. but it can, I think Will Smith said, fear is false evidence appearing real right? Like it feels really freaking real when you're facing it in the moment. And especially if you're holding it at bay, you're trying to suppress it, reject it. You're almost giving it more power just by not looking at it. Cause it's like the very thing you avoid is running you underneath the surface, right? Yeah. Resistance just perpetuates it. And fear can be a powerful motivator. Like I created a lot in my life driven by fear. It's a pretty shitty way to live a life, but it's really powerful. And I think that you don't 
what is it in a dark room you don't bring light by removing darkness you just add the light and so i think that uh it's not a matter of resisting the fear or suppressing the fear or not being guided by the fear it's just a matter of just continuously heading towards the light and trying to find love as a motivator and then the fear will just dissipate or become insignificant yeah but you don't remove darkness uh, to add light and the light is really your own awareness it's the light of your own consciousness of your own self-awareness the ability to actually that's a big part of our work is from excavation which is like going down into the subconscious into the shadow to illumination where you're really like starting to see what's there through a new lens and through a lens of embracing ultimately recognizing that every single shadow every fear is a teacher it is here to show us something it's to there's a gift or a key contained within each one of those emotions and sometimes the darker and more scary the emotion the more powerful the gift contained within it so it's also like the scavenger hunt with life right where we have to kind of keep looking under the crevices and in the closets and under the bed and find the things that that are hidden there that are in the shadows that are actually very valuable and make life fun because it's a joyful discovery process to be in with yourself. Yes, 100%. And yeah, it can become really a lot of fun and also a celebration. Now, when you are on that path, and you just live in your truth, you face your shadows, you you walk your path. That can also be met with resistance. I know you both had to deal with some concerns about how family friends would receive the way you live your book. And you also had some reactions. Can you tell us how you were able to actually make the choice to stand in your truth versus trying to please everyone and then how you dealt with people who were having difficulty to come terms with how you express your truth. Yeah, that was particularly difficult for me as I've gone on through this journey over the last four or five years. And I think that creating awareness around not around understanding why people are in resistance to the way you're changing, right? And I think that a lot of times when you're evolving and questioning life in certain ways, that often at a subconscious level puts pressure on those around you to question their life or examine their life in the same way. And so you become a difficult reflection, a trigger to them. And so understanding that it's just the scared little boy or girl in them that is feeling threatened by the way in which you're changing. And so when you put that lens on, you really have compassion for it. At first I was getting very angry and wanting people to see things my way and understand me and be seen. And then when you start to really look at it and say, I really should just have compassion for this person because they're feeling threatened by me and it's questioning their identity, it's questioning the way they're living their life. And so when you look at it through that lens, then the defensive mechanisms kind of dissolve. And when you soften in that way, they typically soften as well because they may not even feel it, but energetically when you're defensive, they're defensive and you're creating this friction. But when you soften and you, in your heart, without even saying anything, when you have compassion for their perspective and their trigger, they feel that energetically, they feel that soften in you and they typically soften and then open up. But it's been a journey for me to release attachment to how other people perceive me or understand me. And I truly, have, I've done a lot of work around this and I, I don't have an expectation 
And so when I engage with some old friends and and, and people in, that used to be in my life in a more significant way, I can just be curious about what they're doing in their life. And it's, I really have beautiful conversations without an, a really unconscious agenda or subconscious agenda to shift their perspective. And so it makes the interactions actually really beautiful and lovely now. And then when I soften, they show up with curiosity. So it's really shifted, but I think it's just find compassion. Yeah. And I would just sprinkle a little bit to that because I thought the answer was really solid, but there's a difference between pity and compassion. (laughs) So I think people can feel, it's oh, I feel so bad for you. You're not on the path. You're not doing the work. How could you possibly understand? That's more of a condescending energy. And I think that would, that creates more separation. True compassion is like really genuinely walking in their shoes and understanding where they're coming from and just feeling the parts of yourself in them that, that are the same, right? That to me is like true compassion. And that's when the softening can genuinely occur. Yeah. just wanted to add that. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We're just getting interrupted by my, oh my gosh. (laughs) So cute. He's been chatty. He's just been sleeping on my lap. I kept him here because otherwise he'll start barking upstairs. So <laughs> we'll have to wait. So yeah, thank you for giving both of your perspectives on that. That's a really beautiful way to approach it with compassion. And also important to point out the difference between pity and compassion, of course. And for a lot of us who are still dealing with fear of stepping into our truth or following our path, I think it's also good to become aware of that. It's quite normal to have that fear first, because on the one side, we're biologically hardwired into not wanting to become expulsed from the tribe. That means the chances of survival are lessening dramatically. And also it's one of our sacred desires to be loved. And from that, for me, at least, it also what helped me on my journey was the sacred desire to be loved. It also led me to to self-love and it becomes so freeing to shed all these layers of should. Not that it's easy. Sometimes it can be facilitated. And sometimes we face great obstacles and a lot of us List you both certainly, and probably a lot of the people listening to this podcast are familiar with this quote that everything is happening for us, right? But when we are in a state of pain and loss and fear, like many are experiencing in present times, how can we connect to this? Even if it's in the softest way, how can we? step out of that state of misery that we're experiencing and connect to this, everything is actually happening for me. I think going back to we at the beginning of the conversation, we put the cue in becoming because it's all about asking those questions. And I think the first step is, is kind of, it's a practice of continuously asking the question of, okay, this thing that appears to be something I don't want, how could it potentially be serving? And if you're just asking that question and you get in the habit of it, then you're going to create the awareness to to really look at the life. And sometimes it's really hard to ask the question. And sometimes the answer is not at all apparent, but I think this whole personal transformation game boils down to really trust. 
And so it's a you it's a trust is like a muscle that you have to you have to stretch and flex. And so you have to just be in the practice of trusting. And it's hard. And certainly we have our moments right now. We're biting off more than we can chew. We're doing more than we have resources for. And we constantly have to like remind ourselves like, okay, trust. And we just like everyone, we're in the practice of leaning into that, of asking, how could this be serving? What am I, if maybe this is slowing us down and maybe it's slowing down us down for a reason because we're meant to slow down and how to trust, but it's a muscle. It's a practice. And we certainly have our challenges with it, just like anybody else. Yeah. And I think what we're really trusting in is it's not trust isn't hypothetical. It's sort of really trusting in the larger intelligence of life itself, trusting that there is a bigger picture, that there is a, a, an intelligent design to all of the things that happen in our life, especially the challenges and the obstacles. And that's, I think, what the trust is all about. Even if I can't see it or understand it, is there a part of me that still trusts that this is in service to my greatest growth? And it may not feel like that. It may feel like life is against me and is trying to get me to fail right now. But can I connect to the part of me that chooses to believe that there is a deeper purpose and meaning behind this? And can I be so attuned? Can I listen so deeply to what the answer to that question might be? Of Like, what is this here to teach me? If that's the question in my heart and if I'm really facing an obstacle, and I'm really willing to listen. I'm really w willing to get quiet internally and externally and get off my phone and go outside and put my feet on the earth and really take a few deep breaths. Can I do that enough times as a way of life, not just as a one-time thing that I hope will get me a result, but as a way of being alive, as a way of practicing being alive and being in dialogue with life. That's really where all the nourishment eventually comes, but it's not it's, we have such a like instant gratification mindset. And especially with social media now more than ever, it's like everything's available at our fingertips. So you want to order Amazon. It's like same day delivery, right? Everything is so instantaneous in our Western world. My experience of communicating with the intelligence of life is it doesn't always just give you the results. It doesn't always just give you the answer right away. Like sometimes you have to come back and get humbled and really ask and really want to know before you're going to get anything. And I think that's serving a deeper part of us, a part of us that is here to mature and is here to remember how to be in that listening and in that conversation with something that speaks beyond words, communicates beyond words. Mm. And I think if we have that and we can find that no matter how challenging things get, we've won the lottery ticket in a way because then it doesn't matter so much what happens or life We'll always throw challenges our way and there'll always be pain and discomfort, but that is like a lifeline that we can always come back to. And I think it's about nourishing it and strengthening it through our presence and our awareness. Beautiful. And you both mentioned something, Benjamin, you mentioned practice and Azria, you said we keep practicing these things, make it a way of life, like the connecting to the ground. There's a question I like to ask each guest that comes on the show, and that is about the practices that maybe they've accompanied you for a big part of your life. Maybe it's something you knew you discovered, but something that really has helped you to level up physically, mentally, and or spiritually. Would you be willing to share something with us with that regard? There's so many tools that I think are supportive for me 
the ones that I use on a daily basis are, I think it's what I just described. It's like the willingness to stop, take a moment and connect to my breath. And whether I'm doing a proper meditation or I'm going for a walk and I'm intentionally feeling the sun on my skin and the wind in my hair, and I'm having a conversation with the trees or with the ocean. For me, that's what creates the larger fabric of my life. Certainly the plant medicines and the psychedelics have been powerful tools to catapult me into different states of consciousness and expanded states of awareness and have given me so much information to come back to my regular life with. But then how I utilize that information, what I do with it on a daily basis ultimately comes down to how much am I listening? How well am I taking care of myself? And how much am I giving myself permission to get out of my intellectual mind? That really is the thing. And that can happen a lot of different ways, obviously. For some people, extreme sports do that really well. For me, meditation is a go-to practice that I find is very grounding and really anchors me in a frequency that feels balanced and at peace and allows me to be much more receptive and present to my everyday experience, especially when I'm consistent with it. I'll take a different answer. And I think I would venture to guess that there's a similarities in a lot of the answers from your guests, but so I'll try and take a really different approach is over the course of my life, I've always taken the time to reflect at the end of every year and put a lot of thoughtfulness into my coming year. And so as I hit that rock bottom moment, five years ago, I built what we now call the becoming the first seed of what is now the becoming operating system, which has evolved. And in our programs, we help people really design a new life for themselves and a new way of operating. And you literally walk away with a hundred or 200 page deck that you've created that is now your new guide for your life. And so one of the practices I think that's made me really successful is that I've always really examined the way I was living my life and put a lot of thoughtfulness into it. And so now this operating system, I update it every month, every quarter. And so I don't get off track and for a while, I carried it with me everywhere I went. I had a printed copy and it was a really tool. And now it's so ingrained in me that I don't have to do it that often. But I really put a lot of thoughtfulness into what are my goals for the year? What are my goals for the quarter? How am I tracking against them? And what are beyond the goals? Because when you say that you want to, you want this house or this car or this thing, what you really want is a feeling. And so what I've really done is really tap into what's the desired feeling underneath the goal and how can I have that feeling without having the goal? And really putting a lot of thoughtfulness into where I'm going and a lot of intention into my life and then checking in fr frequently on how I'm doing. And so I think that's been a really powerful tool for a lot of times. I use that tool in a distorted way, right? To create more and more material wealth and more things. And I did that and I was very successful. It made me a very successful entrepreneur. Now it's significantly more purposeful, more thoughtful, and more really tied to the underlying feelings and, and the greater purpose in my life. But it's still a valuable tool that's evolved. And so I think that's really helped me. Thank you both for sharing, Azriel and Benjamin. For people who would like to learn more about you and your offerings, especially also the platform and the programs under Becoming, where can they find you and how can they reach out to you? So our website is the best place to find us and it's just becomingwithaq.me. And on there, you'll be able to order the book. You'll be able to find out more information about our programs. And we highly recommend you sign up for our newsletter. We'll, you'll receive more media and just information about what we're doing. And yeah, we have both online programs as well as in-person retreats. And I don't know if you want to share a little bit more about the offerings that we have. 
Yeah, we really have two, three archetypes that we cater to. So the we have Becoming Inspired, which is designed for who I was five or 10 years ago, which is... Stewards. I'm sorry. <laughs> misspoke. About Becoming Stewards, which is designed for people like me five or 10 years ago, which have checked a lot of the boxes of traditional success, but are feeling like they're lacking purpose and fulfillment and wanting to examine what the next stage of this life might look like. And then we have Becoming Allies, which is designed for who Azri was five or 10 years ago, which is super heart-centered, wants to do good in the world, but hasn't necessarily figured out how to man manifest that in a significant way. And then Becoming Inspired is for people that are early on their personal development path, just starting off. And it's really more of an introductory into the ecosystem. So we have offerings for all three of those archetypes that range between three and six months in length that have virtual components and person components. And you're also just, you are in Mexico right now and you're working on the retreat that you've envisioned for a long time. You mentioned it before, Benjamin, you're biting off a little more that you can chew. Can you tell us what's happening there, what we can expect in the future? It's a little early, I think, for that. We're still in the discovery process right now of whether this is the place and we've been scouting for land. But yeah, the vision is to have our own retreat center and we will be sharing more about that as soon as we, as soon as it's more official. Wonderful. I hope to reconnect with you both then. Thank you both so much for making time and coming on the show. Really wonderful to connect with you. And thank you for everything you're doing, which is really helping humanity to propel towards humanity 2.0. Superhumanize. Accelerated evolution.